pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word, and we thank you that we have the opportunity to attend to that word freely. We pray that we would uh, celebrate that freedom and celebrate it mostly by actually diving into your word and having it work in our lives that we might be better conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, good to have goals, don't you think? It's good to have goals. So in uh, 2014, a pastor in Florida preached a sermon that was 53 hours and 18 minutes long. He landed himself in the Guinness Book of Records. And this morning, I thought we would try to break that record. <laughs> turn back, sir, turn back. And, uh, and uh, shoot for like 55 hours. What do you think, huh? No, I hear that voice, Steve Hawt, that voice of negativity. All right, we won't do 53 hours and 18 minutes. So that whatever we do do, you'll be very content with. Amen. is divine. What's the verse and number on that, uh, Steve? Some folks have a hard time with reality. Uh, I had a really good friend in the military, and I was friends with him and his wife, and uh, she was a really, really smart woman. I think I may have shared this story with you before. In fact, she went on to medical school, and she's practicing somewhere now. I don't know exactly where. But she did not believe that we had actually gone to the moon. She thought it was fate. So every year when the anniversary came up, of course, in the military, we got excited about that, and it was really interesting to us to watch Neil Armstrong step out on the surface of the moon. It's a really difficult thing to do. I don't know if you follow the news lately, but a couple of other nations have tried to land a spacecraft, an unmanned spacecraft, on the moon, and they failed at the last minute. It's a tough thing to do. She wouldn't believe that it had happened, would not embrace reality. Well, so then in 2014, while that pastor was setting the record for 53 hours and 18 minutes, Uh, In 2014, there was a spacecraft, an unoccupied spacecraft, a little probe uh, from the European Space Agency. It landed on a comet. Now listen to this. This probe had traveled 3.4 billion miles over the course of 10 years, looping around the solar system several times, using both the Earth's and Mars' gravitational effects as a slingshot to catch up with this comet, which was traveling at 85,000 miles per hour. And it landed on the, on the comet. My friend's wife will never believe that that happened. Because some things can be hard to believe. That passage that Pastor Laura read to us from 1 Corinthians, was a remind, it's a reminder to us that over and over and over again, the apostles, and from the very beginning, the the teachers of the church and the theologians of the church have emphasized the reality of the person and life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because some folks found it hard to believe. Well, we're going to deal with this issue of belief this morning a little bit as we think some more about what a community of grace looks like. Because a community of grace is anchored in the person of Jesus. And a community of grace then can experience genuine fellowship, genuine connection, 
A community of grace can experience genuine joy if we are thoroughly anchored in the person and work of Jesus. So John, the youngest of the apostles, the guy who lived the longest, wrote several uh, pieces of correspondence. The book of Revelation is one. We have, we have these little letters in our New Testament, 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. We're going to read this morning from 1 John chapter 1, just the first four verses on page 1898 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, because we're going to meet in this passage the real Jesus, the author, the founder, the leader of the community of grace, the one upon whom our, uh, upon whom our attention is supposed to be focused so that we can know who he has called us to be. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, page 1898. John says this, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, We write this to make our joy complete. Just in these four verses, John goes to great lengths to develop this idea of the reality of Jesus and nail it down. And he builds a progressively stronger case. In verse 1 he says, "We, we heard him. And as we've cruised a little bit through the Gospel of Mark, we've recognized the power of the words of Jesus. And we saw, for example, several places where when Jesus was done speaking, the crowd sat back in awe because they had never heard words spoken that had such power and conviction. Authority. Over the course of three years... Walking with Jesus, these folks, including John, caught the reality of the authority of the word that they had heard from Jesus. Words have power. When I was in the Air Force, and I apologize this morning, I'm going to use that phrase several times. I know there are some Army people among us. I don't care. So when I was in the Air Force, I had a friend who was a flight training instructor, but his particular job was training foreign students, foreign students from uh, foreign militaries. And so back in that day, the first entry-level trainer for the Air Force was a little airplane called the T-37. We called it the Tweet because of the noise it made when uh, when the jet engines were running. So anyway, in this particular airplane, people, they sit side by side. It's not tandem like the the, the later on jet trainer, which is the T-38, is they sat by side by side. So, and right between the two people in the seat, in the cockpit, there's a handle. It has yellow and black tape wrapped around it. That handle is the ejection handle. If you pull that handle, you're leaving the airplane. <laughs> so, one day, this pilot trainer friend of mine, he and uh, his name was Creed, they, he and another instructor pilot was in another plane with another foreign student. They were practicing formation flying. That is, being together and being close together in the air, making maneuvers at the same time, trying to stay together and not, you know, hit each other in the sky, because that can be a bad thing. So, as they're flying along, the planes got a little bit too close together. 
And so my friend, Creed, he says the words over the radio to the other plane. He says the words, break out, break out, which meant that the planes were supposed to do this so they didn't collide. While he was saying the second break out, he noticed that his foreign uh, pilot student had reached toward the ejection handle and had his hand on it. And he looked over at him and said, what are you doing? And the foreign student said, well, sir, I was waiting for the third command to bail out. No, it was breakout, not bailout. Words have power. They have authority. They have the capacity to make a significant difference in our lives. And if you're in an airplane at, you know, 25,000 feet, and you hear the word bailout, and you bail out, you know, the day's going to go a little differently than you had planned. But these folks traveling with Jesus had heard a different kind of level of authority from the words of Christ. And they, they affirm that to us by saying we heard him. And then in verse 1, John also says we saw it with our own eyes. You know, we have this expression, right? Seeing is believing. But you can't always take that to the bank, and particularly not today with the way they do movies with all these computer-generated graphics. You can't really believe everything that you see, but G, uh, John says he looked at Jesus, he looked at Jesus with his buds, and he said, we saw him with our own eyes, literally seeing, not goldly, ghostly visions, eyewitnesses we call them. Did you see that? Yes, we did. And it wasn't just these folks. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians testifies to the reality that hundreds of people were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And Paul says in his letter to his contemporaries, he says, if you don't believe me, go ask those people. And these disciples, they saw him every day. But interestingly enough, in the, in the original language of the Bible, in verse 1, these words looked at, which we see in the translation we're using, the old King James Version Bible says looked upon. Another translation, the New American Standard Bible says beheld. This word means to examine closely or to inspect. Now, I came close to going into the army. In fact, uh, between my sophomore and junior years of college, I thought about going into Army ROTC, but in order to do that, I had to go to a summer camp to make up for the first two years of ROTC that I had missed. And so I went into this summer camp, and I discovered a couple of things that were really annoying. Annoying thing number one was, these people marched everywhere. We marched past perfectly good buses to get to the same place the bus was going. But no, we marched. And my company commander in particular was a big fan of marching. We got to the end of a 15-mile march over terrain with backpacks and all that other silliness. And we got there, we're sitting in some stands that were set up for training purposes, and we've been debriefed on our march. And all of a sudden, from the distance, we see clouds billowing, and they get closer and closer and closer. And we realize, these are buses. They're buses. The buses are coming for us. And so the buses pulled up, and one by one, the different companies got on a bus, and they drove away. And then there were no more buses. And my company commander said, okay, boys, we're marching back. They marched everywhere. It's really annoying. 
really, really annoying. But anyway, the second thing that was annoying was a regular inspections of your gear. So here's the deal. On a day like you have the forced march, you're supposed to get back in time, get all your gear cleaned up, everything polished up, everything shined up, to get ready for the next morning when they came through to do the inspection. That's annoying. And so one day I cut some corners. And I had a, a helmet. And inside the helmet, there's a thing called a helmet liner so that the metal helmet's not bouncing on your head. The plastic is bouncing on your head. And I had decided not to pull those two things apart and clean the liner off. My drill instructor stopped at my bunk where all my stuff was laid out. And he decided, evil, wicked man that he was, to pull apart my helmet and my helmet liner. Dirt goes flying everywhere. Inspection. For me, that day, not a good day. But these folks, the disciples, they had looked closely at Jesus. They had gotten out their Sherlock Holmes magnifying glasses glasses and checked Jesus out. And then in verse 1, we haven't just heard, we haven't just seen, they said in verse 1 that our hands have touched This is the final test, right? The the physical contact. The the disciple, Thomas, doubting Thomas, we call him. This is the test, reaching out and, and touching. When my grandson Cooper was really small, about... Uh, three or so, just a blonde-haired bundle of you-could-not-stop-him energy, we took him to the Boston Children's Museum. And the Boston Children's Museum is a hands-on experience. It's designed for the kids to touch everything, to feel it, to grasp it. And that's what the disciples are saying about Jesus. This is what John is saying about Jesus. Listen, we didn't just hear him. We didn't just see him. We were close enough and close enough contact with him that we could touch him. And so the conclusion from all of that is that Jesus is real. Now I know that in your life, you have some memories that have made a permanent impact. You can't shake them off. Some of them might be really good memories, and some of them might be really bad memories. Just last Wednesday, we reminded ourselves of the Twin Towers falling on 9-11. I don't know about you, but those pictures are indelibly cemented in my brain. But on an even grander scale, and in the positive direction, for John and the other disciples, there's this unmistakable permanent impact and nothing from their experience with Jesus. Nothing would ever be the same Again, because Jesus was real and Jesus is real. Pastor Laura is uh, seven days into quitting Diet Coke. I call it disgusting cola. Now, the reason I call it disgusting cola is we were at a restaurant one day and she had ordered a Diet Coke and I ordered a nice tea, but they came in these really dark glasses and the server put them on our table and she didn't really distinguish it well. And so I grabbed for one and put my straw in there and started drinking it and it was Diet Coke. And I said, that's disgusting. 
And you know the Coke has had mottos over the year, right? Over the years. Uh, the current motto is taste the feeling. I'm not sure what that means. Before that it was Coke adds life. And before that it was have a Coke and smile. And before that, and for many, many years, their motto was, you know this, right? It's the real thing. Well, let me tell you, move over Coca-Cola. Jesus was and is the original real thing. John knew it. The other disciples knew it. They said it. They lived it. They shared it. They died for it. And because Jesus is real, there are at least two realities that flow from this for people who embrace Jesus, people who believe in Jesus. The first one is in verse 3, that we can have fellowship with each other through Christ. Now, in most churches in the United States of America in the year 2019, when you say fellowship, people automatically think of food. Automatically think of food. What are we going to eat afterwards? And now you're thinking, huh, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. Because that's where our brains go when we hear this word fellowship. But man, fellowship, biblically, is way more than something to eat. And when we just think of food, we diminish the power of this word. The word in the original is koinonia. It's what we have in common. It's what we actively share. It's the picture of people gathered around what we have in common. Not food, but Jesus. In a previous church that I pastored, there was a crisis. The uh, sexton, the, 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 the janitor kind of guy, he retired. And on Sunday mornings, he was the guy who had made the coffee. Panic set in. Who is going to make the coffee? This went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I said in one meeting, I said, you know what? We have spent more time talking about coffee than anything else having to do with the kingdom of God over the last several months. Coffee. I said, you know, do what I do. I stop at Dunkin' Donuts. I get my iced tea. You can do that. Coffee. Coffee creamer. It wasn't the right coffee. It didn't taste right. It hadn't brewed long enough. Go away. And the sad thing is that we have reduced this idea of fellowship to to things like that. When bigger than that, grander than that, is the reality that you and I, we have Jesus in common. And he is the real thing. And because he's the real thing, we can go, listen, we can go the extra mile to help other people fit in to the body of Christ. The extra mile. We can demonstrate some empathy flowing from this fellowship. Some commonality with people who struggle. You've seen, right? You've seen that sometimes people who are undergoing chemotherapy for uh, cancer, their, their hair will fall out over time, and their loved ones, what do their loved ones do? They shave their heads, right? To identify with the person who is struggling. That's empathy. That's fellowship. That's what it looks like. It's not about personal preference and what kind of creamer is going in the coffee. It's about this solid movement towards connecting with people and staying connected with them around the person and work of Jesus. 
when I was in the Air Force. I had a boss for a while. His name was uh, Tom Patimame. He was a, a colonel at the time when I was a major. And he was hospitalized for a while because he donated a kidney to his brother who needed one. That's fellowship. That's identification. That's empathy. That's the real thing. Now, you all don't have to sign up for the kidney donation list, although it's in need of people to sign up for it. But, but do you see the reality of the power? This is not about the coffee creamer. This is about, I love my brother enough to step up and take a significant personal sacrifice to be there for him or for her. This is, that's fellowship. That's, that's what it looks like. It's deep connection. It goes deeper than what the color of the Williams Welcome Center is. It goes deeper than the color of the floor downstairs. It goes deeper than the color of the carpet squares in the chapel. It goes deeper than whether or not there are candles on display up here behind me. It goes deeper than all of those expressions of personal preference that we bring to bear in our experience together in the body of Christ. All those phrases that we toss around that start with I like or I don't like, that's not fellowship. Fellowship is genuine connection around the body of Christ. Fellowship is showing up at 0630 on a Saturday morning and dishing out 480 bottles of water in the hot sun. We thought we had a good side of the street. We thought, we thought well, late in the afternoon, the sun's going to be behind us, so it'll be cooler here. We didn't get to later in the afternoon. We got to 1 o'clock, and so all morning long, the sun was in our faces. But you know what? Those folks who showed up, Gene and Kathy and, and Mary and, uh, and Pastor Gary and, and uh, others who came by to share words of encouragement, that's fellowship. That's what it looks like. Combined together for a purpose, to extend a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, that's fellowship. And nobody who took water from us said, oh, I don't like this bottle of water. Do you have a different color label for the bottle of water? I don't really like this one. Nobody said that. And beyond fellowship, because Jesus is real, we can experience what John talks about here in verse 4 as genuine joy. The purpose of God from the beginning is that his people might have what the Bible calls complete joy. There's a translation of the Bible called The Message by a guy named Eugene Peterson. And he translates this phrase. He says, your joy will double our joy. Do you see what's happening here? That as others grow in their relationship with Christ and deeper into their connection with the fellowship and they experience joy, those looking on to that go, oh, my joy is doubled. And it's completely the same. This joy stuff in the Bible is completely independent of circumstances. Completely independent of circumstances. I'm going to read for you a passage from the book of Acts. It's in chapter 16. And if you want to follow along with me, it's on page 1721. Because I want to show you what joy looks like. Biblically. It's about the Apostle Paul and his traveling buddy at the time, a guy named Silas. 
Listen in Acts chapter 16, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them. Oh, by the way, sometimes when you speak the name of Jesus in a, in a context, some people don't, don't like it. And sometimes there's opposition to it. And that's what happened here. So the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. This is a bad day. When they, had been, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The bad day just got worse. Now let me tell you a little bit about the jailer's situation here. He would, if he lost his prisoners, have to forfeit his own life. That was part of the job description. So then verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he said, I am about to have a really, really, really bad day. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you see what's going on here? The apostle Paul and his traveling traveling buddy Silas They are experiencing joy. How do we know that? They were singing songs of praise to the Lord in the middle of their prison experience. They had real joy, completely independent of what was going on around them. And that joy was contagious, so contagious that the jailer, who knew that his own life was in jeopardy if he lost his prisoners, the jailer says, I see that joy. I think I want some of that. What must I do to get in on that? What must I do to be saved? Completely independent of circumstances and compelling. And so because Jesus is real, we have the capacity to cease being grumpy. And so thrown by circumstances. Pastor Laura and I like the level of traffic here in Emporia County. Because we have lived in places where traffic was a mind-numbing, pull-your-hair-out, that's what happened to mine, experience. And I get to the end of one of those, you know, five-mile, we were going to have dinner with some friends one time, we left the Boston airport, and they lived five miles away from us. It took us 45 minutes to get there. And at the end of that, I was a grumpy guy. Because I had let circumstances derail my joy. They don't have to do that. We can start being genuinely open to the reality of Jesus. And genuinely open to the fullness of the grace of God. And genuinely open to the fellowship. And genuinely open to the joy that's found there. That's what a community of grace looks like. That's what the church is supposed to be. So let me ask you three questions. Jesus is real, but is he real to you? We should experience fellowship gathered around him, and do you? We should have joy. 
Do you? This church, the church, is called to be a community of grace, a place of fellowship and joy that rests squarely on the reality of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we